Now that everybody's comfortable, let's stand, please. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, O Heavenly King, Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, the treasury of good things and giver of life, come and abide in us, cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls, O Good One. Be seated, please. Well, this is our third session together. Uh, our first, as I'm sure you recall, our first session we discussed that the foundational basis for our liturgical experience in the church is the incarnation of Christ, that in Christ the immaterial and material are joined, that heaven and earth are joined, that in the church vivified by the Holy Spirit, uh, the material becomes what it was intended to be in the first place a means of grace, a sacrament. And then last week we spoke of, because it's part of the created order, that time itself is an instrument, uh, is a sacrament, can be a sacrament, can be a means by which God's grace is imparted to us. Tonight I want to shift from talking about the sanctification of time to talking about space. And there won't be any quantum entanglement tonight, I promise. As many of you know, a number of years ago, Terry and I had a, had a wonderful experience in that we made a tour of the Baltic countries uh, along with St. Petersburg, Russia. And what, aside from the beauty of those countries, if you've never been to Scandinavia, let me warn you, no matter how good-looking you are, you will be the ugliest person there. <laughs> Everybody in Denmark and Finland and Sweden are just uh, picture-perfect. But part of the highlight of all those countries was because they all have a significant Orthodox presence in them. And our, our purpose for going was primarily to, to see as many Orthodox churches as, and sites as we could. And one of the highlights was in Helsinki, Finland, the Church of the Dormition of the Mother of God, which is the cathedral church of the church, the Orthodox Church of Finland. After the Russian Revolution, the Orthodox Church in Finland was granted autonomy. And the Upansky Cathedral, or Dormition of the Mother of God Cathedral, is the mother church of Finland. And it sits on a hill in the highest point in Helsinki and looks down on the city. And it's a classic onion-domed, huge Orthodox Russian uh, church, and it's absolutely beautiful. And our, there are several things that I remember about our visit there. First of all, was, was the beauty and sanctity of this church. It was built in the early 1800s, so it's not an ancient church. But just walking through the doors, you felt a presence, a sanctity, uh, a holiness. Uh, that's something that really struck me. Something else that struck me was the 80-plus-year-old babushka who sat by the front door and ordered every tourist who came in wearing a baseball cap to take it off right now. She was policing uh, skirt lengths and shorts. 
And you didn't, I, I, she spoke Russian, I never, I don't know her name, but, but I didn't mess with her. <laughs> the, another memory I have is I had my cassock and my pectoral cross on, and, and I was sitting in this beautiful church just, just thanking God and praising God for its beauty and its holiness. And all of a sudden, this very reverential Asian family came up to me and went, kind of pointed at me and pointed at their camera and said, <laughs> and so it, it, somewhere in the world there's a family that thinks I'm the priest of the North Mission of the, in the Church of Finland. I didn't want to discourage them or burst their bubble. The fourth thing I re remember, and what's pertinent to tonight, is how obvious it was who was from a Western culture when they came through the front door. You could tell that Americans and even Western Europeans walked through the door and this was just another tourist attraction. And they shuffled in with their cameras and with their conversations. Uh, you know, and if they didn't get chased down by Babushka, they, it was just, you know, taking their pictures, and, and, and it was just another, another tourist attraction. But for another segment, it wasn't. And it wasn't just, you could obviously tell the ones coming in were orthodox, but it just wasn't that. There were a number of, of, of Asians in there, and even they were showing reverence for the space. And you could tell immediately that in our Western culture, it was, a, it was a classic example of how in our Western culture we have lost the sense of sacred space. You know, one of the ramifications of the Protestant Reformation was a change in perception of what the church is. And for many of the reformers, the structure used for worship, the church building, was no more sacred than anywhere else. You know, you could pray under a tree or by a river bank or in a residential house or in a lecture hall. Holy things took place, but the place itself wasn't sacred. And for many reformers, the emphasis moved from the altar to the pulpit. The emphasis moved from a temple to a, an assembly hall. John Calvin even warned of the idea of looking for hidden, his words, hidden holiness in a church building. And in our country, the Puritans took this idea to the extreme referring to their worship space as meeting houses, structures that were used for all kinds of meetings. It could be a, a town assembly on Saturday and a church service on Sunday. And so as a product of Reformation and as a product of the culture that most of us were raised in, this idea of sacred space has been lost. And this, per this perception of the reformers, this perception of secular culture, that there's no sacredness 
and intrinsic to a space is a far cry from the words of St. John of Cronstadt, which I quoted in a previous session. When St. John of Cronstadt, which by the way wasn't that far from Helsinki, his perspective of, of the church space is this. When you are in the temple, remember that you are in the living presence of the Lord God. That you stand before his face, before his eyes, in the living presence of the mother of God, of the holy angels, of the firstborn of the church. That is our forefathers, prophets, apostles, hierarchs, martyrs, reverend fathers, the righteous, and all the saints. If you're paying attention to Matins, that, that's that long list that Deacon Ed prays to and for in Matins. But he goes on to say, always have the remembrance and consciousness of this when you are in the temple. And stand with devotion, taking part willingly and with all your heart in the divine service. And listen to the words of St. John Chrysostom. When you are before the altar where Christ reposes, you ought to think that you are no longer among men, but believe that there are troops of angels and archangels standing by you, trembling with respect before the sovereign master of heaven and earth. Therefore, when you are in church, be there with silence, fear, and veneration. St. John's description of the church accurately reflect the words of St. Paul in his epistle to the Hebrews when he says, But you are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. For St. Paul, St. John of Kronstadt, St. John Chrysostom, and for all Orthodox Christians, the church is not simply a meeting hall. It's not simply a place to assemble, but it is a holy place, a meeting of heaven and earth, a joining together of heaven and earth in the worship of the one triune God. And just as Moses was on holy ground before the burning bush in the presence of God, so we too step onto holy ground in the church because we too are in the presence of God. Mystically present is our high priest and tangibly present on the altar in the form of his body and blood. This realization of holy ground, of sacred space, so difficult for us Westerners brought up within the shadow of Protestant Puritan ethos and a secular worldview, this realization of sacred ground, of holy space, it's vital to our experience of God and our worship of him. 
And just as the words of the liturgy are a constant reminder of our entrance into heavenly spaces, the very church structure itself is designed to orient us to this fundamental reality of heaven and earth mystically united in worship as one. St. Paul tells the church at Ephesus, the church is the body of Christ, the fullness of him. It's a pretty profound statement. Intentional rabbit trail. When you are talking about the Orthodox faith to, ortho, to Christians of, of different experiences, when you're talking to a Protestant or, or, or any flavor, Roman Catholic, anyone who calls himself Christian, and you're discussing, discussing the difference between the Orthodox Church and whatever tradition they come out of. Let me make a suggestion to you. Remember what Paul says, that the church is the fullness of Christ. And I've always found it much more productive and much more friendly and much more fruitful to frame a discussion with non-Orthodox people in terms not of right versus wrong, but of fullness versus partiality. That God intends the church to be the fullness of Christ. And yes, wherever the name of Jesus Christ is preached, wherever the Trinity is proclaimed, there's grace. You've all heard me say a hundred times, there's no way on God's green earth that my Appalachian, North Carolina, Southern Baptist grandmother was going to be introduced to the Orthodox Church. But she was faithful to what she knew. And there was grace there. But was it fullness? I don't know about you, but I want fullness. And I, I'm not orthodox because I want to be right. I'm orthodox because I want to experience the fullness of what God intended his church to be. Holy, sacred place where heaven and earth come together. If we truly desire to experience the church as this fullness, we must strive to recover and maintain this sense of being on holy ground. So I want to talk a little bit about the space, and I, I want to spend a little time tonight talking about an aspect of this reality that I'll be honest with you, we've lost. When I say we've lost, I don't mean the Orthodox Church, I mean St. Ignatius Orthodox Church. And it's something that I must confess that most times I am as guilty as anyone else in allowing this loss to happen. What I want to point out to you briefly is to talk a little bit about our initial entrance into the church. I want to talk about the area of the church we refer to as what? The narthex. The narthex. It's interesting, if you trace the linguistic roots of the word narthex, you find root words that mean to cleanse or to scourge. You also see root words that the Greeks used that, the word narthex to refer to a small case that was used to carry healing oils. 
And so within the root words of narthex are the ideas of cleansing, of scourging, which is an extreme form of cleansing, and of healing. It is the orthodox conviction, the completely biblical conviction, that in union with Christ, we are being transfigured. We've talked about that a lot last week, about theosis, deification, that Christ, as the hymnody of the church proclaims over and over again throughout our liturgical year, Christ came to restore the image that had fallen. That salvation is not simply a matter of forgiveness. It is a matter of restoration for which forgiveness is necessary. But ultimately Christ came to reconcile, to restore, to renew. Moreover, it is the conviction of the church that all creation within the church participates in this transfiguration. And again, last week we talked about that. In the new Eden, the church of bread and wine and oil and water becoming agents of grace, of salvation. When Christ comes again to establish his kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth will be inaugurated. And the divine liturgy is the conditional realization of that reality in the here and now. The divine liturgy is a foretaste of that new heaven and earth which is to come in its fullness at the second coming of Christ. And that first space in the church, the narthex, is an absolute key in understanding this transition from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of God. And the narthex is supposed to be a space of transition. A space of transition from the world to the kingdom of God. It's a place of movement from one state of being to another. That's why in the ancient church, where did the catechumens and the penitents hang out? In the narthex. Those that were coming to the faith or being restored to the faith were in this area of transition, of movement from one kingdom to another, movement from the old man to the new man, being transfigured. It's why the narthex is still used as a place of transition in many of the services of the church. Baptism begins in the narthex. The prayers of the catechumen, the prayers of exorcism are prayed in this transition area from the world to the kingdom of God. In fact, in traditional church architecture, as many of you know, the baptismal font itself is in the narthex. And it's after baptism that the newly illumined is brought into the church and the transition is completed. But in our tradition, baptism begins in the narthex. Churching begins in the narthex. 
And in the Russian wedding service, marriage begins in the narthex. The betrothal is done in that transition area and then moved into the kingdom of God to become the sacrament of marriage. This area that we call the narthex, this area of cleansing, this area of transition, exists within the church as a space for us to move our hearts and mind from one state to the other. For us, the narthex should be a place of transition, a place where we lay aside all earthly cares, a place of preparation, a place to light a candle in anticipation of entering into the light of Christ in the divine liturgy. Likewise, upon our exit from the sanctuary, it is a place to gather what has been received as fortification as we move in the other direction. And all of you have re remember, I've told you what the traditional icon is above the doors going outside. The last judgment. The last thing the church wants you to think about as you're going through those doors is the last judgment. So this idea of the narthex being an area of spiritual, mental, and even physical transition of preparation. Let's be honest with ourselves. Is this how we experience and utilize the narthex? For most of us, most of the time, the answer is no. For us, the narthex has become a space outside the temple, a place to visit, a place to catch up, a place to socialize. And brothers and sisters, and I, I, of whom I am chief, by viewing the narthex as that, we are robbing ourselves and others of the full experience of the sanctuary by ignoring the function of the narthex. As we make this transition from earth to heaven, we should all commit ourselves to the practice of praying the prayer of entry into a church. You know, there is a formal prayer of entry into a church. I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercies, and I will worship toward thy holy temple in the fear of thee. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before me, that with a clear mind I may glorify thee forever. One divine power worshiped in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's in your little prayer books, by the way, I believe. But do we pray that upon entering the church? Likewise, there's a prayer to pray as you're exiting the church, one you already all know. Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people, Israel. We're not a big, we're not a big uh, percentage of the overall congregation of St. Ignatius in this room, but I want to, I want to challenge us. Not, not in a showy way, not saying a word to another human being that's outside this room. Let's recover the narthex. Let's try. Let's, let's use it for what it's intended to be used for. You know, another rabbit trail. 
I want to go on record as agreeing 100% with Father Phillips' homily last Sunday. I hope you were listening. And he exhorted us, if we call ourselves Christians and we are called to love unconditionally, he warned us against passing judgment on the conduct of other people in the liturgy, be they adult or children or somewhere in between, or deacon or priest or, or whatever. And I agree with that 100%. But I also want each of us to consider a counterbalance to that. And that is that that same love that we're called to have to never judge the conduct of our brother, that same love should drive us to never do anything to distract our brother, to do everything in our power to worship with faith, reverence, and the fear of God. From the narthex, we enter the church proper. And again, quoting St. John Chrysostom, quote, every time we cross the threshold of the house of God, we are entering a heavenly place. In its interior, peace reigns, and it is filled with inexpressible mysteries. There within the divine palace, the mystery of the kingdom of God is celebrated. The intersection of heaven and earth, this ground made sacred by the presence of God, is affirmed throughout the language and prayers of the divine liturgy. In that initial great litany that the deacon prays, the deacon leads us to pray for what? For this holy house and for all who enter with faith, reverence, and the fear of God. And again, quoting St. John Chrysostom from a homily, you know what the title of this homily is? The Rebuke of Those Who Are Absent. <laughs> so maybe he was preaching to the choir that day. Uh, probably in my 20 plus years of preaching at St. Ignatius some of you have felt the frustration that my, you know you probably didn't deserve so this is a rebuke of those, those absent he says just as a calm and sheltered harbor provides great security to the ships moored there so does the temple of God when people enter it it snatches them away from worldly affairs as from a storm. It gives them the capacity to stand and listen to God's word in calm and security. This place is the bedrock of virtue and the school of spiritual life. You only need to set foot on the threshold of a church and at once you are liberated from the cares of daily life. It transports you from heaven, from earth to heaven. When I make that step, when I cross that threshold, when I've made that transition, I've entered the kingdom of God. I've entered holy space and stand on holy ground. 
in Exodus 49, God commanded Moses to take, quote, the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it in all its furnishings and it will be holy. Exodus 49. In the rite of the consecration of a church. Remember when Bishop Antoon and Bishop Thomas were here and we consecrated our new temple. In that consecration service, the bishop proclaims, Today thine unapproachable glory has come upon your temple built on earth, making it heaven. That's what that consecration did. St. Germano states, quote, After the rite of consecration, we no longer call the church simply a house but holy, because it has been sanctified by the Holy Father, through the Holy Son, and in the Holy Spirit. It is the house and dwelling place of the Holy Trinity. You're all so well behaved. <laughs> so, it's so easy to let these words just slip by us, especially if we brush through the narthex without any preparation or transition, and we're in there still buzzing about I-65 traffic or the dirty diaper that happened, always happens in the car after you're on the way to church, whatever it might be. And we, we sometimes... It's, we, we, we haven't settled in. That's why you need to come to Orthros if you can. Even if you don't, can't understand what's being said, where else in the world can you have an hour of quiet? <laughs> <laughs> At least in this wintertime when there's church school. <clears throat> but the deacon is praying for this holy house, for this sacred place, and right at the beginning, we're acknowledging that this is no longer the world that we're in. At the little entrance, the priest prays, Master, Lord, our God, who has established orders and armies of angels and archangels in heaven to minister to thy glory, grant that with us the holy angels may enter, concelebrating and glorifying us with thy goodness. And brothers and sisters, the mystical reality is that is exactly what is happening. That even as the veil in the temple is rent, which those holy doors represent, and we have access to the Holy of Holies, we have access to the throne and altar of God in heaven, we enter into that heavenly worship in a very real way, accompanied by the innumerable host of heaven. We sing the Trisagian hymn. What does, what does Trisagian mean? Thrice, Thrice holy, which as you all know, is that that the church has always seen the words of that hymn as divinely given 
which are mirrored both in the vision of heavenly worship that Ezekiel had in the Old Testament and that St. John has in his vision of the apocalypse in the book of Revelation. But let me ask you, or let's let, let St. John Chrysostom ask you uh, where your frame of mind is when you're singing the Trisagion hymn. St. John says, quote, Consider who is singing with you. <laughs> and that should be enough to move you to vigilance. It should be sufficient when you remember that while being clothed with the body and bound up with the flesh, more and more of it all the time, you have been accounted worthy to him the Lord together with the bodiless powers. Is that the joy we're experiencing? Is that the awe we're experiencing? It is the reality that we're experiencing. Later in the liturgy, the priest blesses the people, proclaiming, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. See, I was on automatic pilot there. <laughs> and right after that, and we've talked about this some in the past, the priest then says, let us lift up our hearts, to which the people respond, what? We lift them up unto the Lord. The literal translation of that exchange is, and there's a footnote in the liturgicon that points this out. The when the priest says, let us lift up our hearts, the literal translation of, of that is, let our hearts be on high. In your response, we lift them up to the Lord is literally translated we have them with the Lord. In other words, we have literally been lifted up. We are with the Lord as our high priest, concelebrating the same heavenly liturgy together. We are ascending to the heights, to the throne of God, whereas St. Paul says to the Colossians, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Again, in the liturgy, as the laity is singing, it is meet and right to him thee, to praise thee, to bless thee. The priest is praying, it is meet and right to him thee, to praise thee, to give thanks unto thee, to worship thee in every place of thy dominion, for thou art God, ineffable, incomprehensible, invisible, inconceivable, ever existing, eternally the same. Thee and thy only begotten Son and thy Holy Spirit, thou did bring us out of non-existence into being. And when we had fallen, did raise us up again and left nothing undone till thou hast brought us up to heaven and granted us thy kingdom, which is to come. Again, St. John challenges you and asks you, when we're singing that triumphal hymn, the choir and the laity, John, St. John asks, 
Did you recognize this voice? Is it yours or is it that of the seraph? Is it yours? It is both yours and that of the seraph. Thanks to Christ who destroyed the middle wall of enmity and made peace between heaven and earth. And throughout the liturgy, in its language, in its hymnody, in its prayers, is the constant knowledge that in the divine liturgy, remember the divine work and service of the people, our job, our work on Sunday morning is to process into heaven. And that's what we do in the divine liturgy. I used to tell people sometimes would come and express frustration with 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 the with with the atmosphere of the liturgy and just their lives in general. Sometimes they would say, "I just don't feel the presence of God. I want to, but I don't." And my response was always the same: If you want God to be present act like he is. <laughs> act like he's there. You know, I've told the story, story before of the young man who goes to St. Macarius, not the ancient St. Macarius, but 18th century Russian priest saint. And this young man, this zealous young man comes to St. Macarius, he goes, Father, you know, there was a time I couldn't pray enough. There was a time I couldn't read my Bible enough. There was a time when I couldn't be in church enough. And now, none of it means anything to me. Everything's a struggle. I don't want to do it. I, I've lost my, my zeal. St. Macarius' first response to him was, how dare you judge your own spirituality? <laughs> What he was saying to the young man is, you, you may not realize it, but what, what, what you're expressing is an upside-down, convoluted form of pride. Be careful when you lament how sinful you are. Because that can be a subtle form of... Believe me, you, you're no better at sinning than anybody else in this room. I know, I've heard. <laughs> For some of you, that's not true. <laughs> I remember one time somebody just poured out all this, just every single thing you could possibly imagine. Oh, Father, I just said, blah, 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 blah. And it just went on and on and on and on and on and beating the breast and all this kind of thing. And when they, fi when they finally stopped to uh, take a breath, I said, may I ask you a question? And they said, yes, Father, what is this? I said, what makes you so special? <laughs> you know. One thing you can take comfort in, in when you go to confession is that sometimes, especially those of you that might be newly chrismated or, or, or new to the church, and, and confession is a new thing, it's intimidating, and, and, and it's in, maybe a little bit embarrassing. Trust me. There's nothing novel or unusual <laughs> or scandalous or shocking about anything you could confess. 
one of the, strange to say it, but one of the, as a priest, one of the hardest things in the world to do, spiritually, emotionally, and physically, is to hear confessions. But the great blessing of it, other than knowing that the grace of God is present, is the main thing. But personally, what's personally edifying is the constant reminder that we all struggle together. That all sin is common to all of us. And that's why going back to the structure of the church, you sit in the what? The nave. Now again, if you, if you go to the root of that, there's, there's, there's two directions you can go with. Nave, nave comes from the word, Latin word for middle, which we get the navel, but it also comes from the word nawis, which means navy, or nautical, or a ship. And the church has always used a ship as an icon of the church. And if you think about the galleys and ships of the patristic age and the biblical age, they, they were... I have the image of these rows of oars. And how does a ship get where it's going most efficiently? When everybody rows together. If you've ever been in a canoe with two people, if one side paddles too predominantly, what happens? You go in circles. And so when we're of one mind and one accord in the church, you don't think you have a job as laity? You think you're there to be passive? Uh-uh. You're rowing the ship, boys and girls. And those on the left and those on the right need to be of one heart and one mind and at peace with each other. Because if you're not at peace with each other, the ship's going to start going in circles. And we need to remember that. We are the body of Christ. I woke up last night... <laughs> And my big toe on my right foot was killing me. I don't know why. And it was like, at that point in time, my right big toe was the most important part of my body. And the, whole, and, and, and the rest of the body couldn't be right until it was. And so we're a body. And we hurt together, and we love together, and we row together toward our common destination of the kingdom of God. And when you're sitting in that sacred space, know that your divine service is that you're in the ship bound for heaven. And if we do it together of one accord, by God's grace, we'll get there. There's a lot more we could say about the space. We haven't even gotten to the, the iconostas or the uh, altar area. But the main point, brothers and sisters, is, and, and the point of all of this, whether we're talking about time or space or talking about later on, well, I, th I think Tom is going to give a great presentation on some historical development aspects of the liturgy next week and then I think I think then our next session after that is titled the oblationary aspect of liturgy 
The only reason I, oh, what is an oblation? We offer this holy oblation. Oblation is an offering. And all of my sessions ended in AL, and I couldn't think of a way to, for offering to end in AL, so I said oblation. That's why it's called that, <laughs> just for consistency. But all of these sessions and all of these discussions, the whole point is to strive with, if we strive to the best of our ability and we will fail and we will stumble and the kids will sing in tone nine like they always do. <laughs> and, uh, but the whole point is, it, it is to, if we strive together, the whole point of this is to experience the church as the fullness of Christ and to do it together. God bless you all. It's uh, about five till, and then we'll anybody have any comments or? Um, I was wondering when you were talking about the narthex, is that only during liturgy that that they're to to observe? No, I think it, or is it all the time? It should be. In the church and it should be. Just as, just as, there's just as there should be a reverence in the church, the 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 sanctuary, the temple, when there's no service going on. I mean, it, it, it's there's there's it, it, I, I I believe me, I know it's tough. I, I I'm guilty all the time. I see somebody, I'm happy to see them. I've been a good boy and been quiet for a while, and uh, in my new role as uh, as rower out in the <laughs> congregation <laughs> and uh, it's tempting because we do love each other and we do want to see each other but you know we got a nice long hallway that we can fill up as well and I don't none of this is designed or intended to be legalistic you know as far as it, these things go it, it's analogous I, I had a former member that they moved. They're not here. I've told you before, <coughs> if, if, under my regime, if you move away from St. Ignatius, that makes you open prey to have stories told about you. <laughs> as long as you stay here, I won't say a word. Uh, but I had a man come up to me, and he just... He just was done. With, he was just done with the idea of fasting. <laughs> He didn't want to have anything to do with it. And he, he said, you know, he was kind of belligerent about it. He says, Father Stephen, is God going to do something to me if I don't fast? And my response was, no. He's not going to do a thing to you if you fast. And that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> and God's not going to strike us dead. He's not going to punish us. A lightning bolt. Watch it happen on Sunday. Because <laughs> I'm not going to be here Sunday. <laughs> but uh, uh, the point is not to adhere to some rigorous legalistic rule. It's that, again, Christ came to restore the image that had fa has fallen. And we're given the privilege of worshiping and experiencing God with our whole being body, soul, and spirit. And all these talks are designed to, to
to move us toward an awareness that the experience of God, despite the distractions, uh, can become a living reality in our lives. Ty? question by saying I'm going to respond and not but not answer okay could you repeat the question for the uh, I, I as I understand the question can I from my personal experience relate to any personal experiences of, of experiencing this heaven and earth the answer is yes For a man to discuss those things is dangerous and can lead to pride. But I, so I'm not, I'm not going to go into detail. But I can tell you, yes, there are times when when the presence of God is absolutely tangible. There are times at the epiclesis when we say, "Send down Thy Holy Spirit." That the it's real, <laughs> but I would point to our children. Yeah, a hundred times. I'm not exaggerating. A hundred times over the course of twenty something years, after in coffee hour, Father Stephen, did you see the angels at the altar today? Did you see the angel flying up, up in the dome? You know, just la 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 la. You know, like, you know, well, well, you know no, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and but countless times when they have the kids, and why? Because they don't bring all those distractions in. They, they have not erected filters of reason and experience and, and modes of thought that veil the reality that's this close to them, but they just don't see. And so I would point to them. I would point to the fact, and this might sound like hyperbole, I have never, I don't know how many, it's triple figures, I don't know how many. I've never churched a baby that somewhere in that procession between the narthex and the altar, they haven't smiled. I'm, we're talking about 40 days infants. How many hundreds of infants have I seen 
more so in the new church, literally their facial expression changed when they get under the dome. Is that simply the stimulation of colors? Yeah, <laughs> but colors from heaven. And so I'm sure there are many people in this room that can point to experiences of that. I just reread a story, not just this past week, of a, 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 a church of all the parishioners went to the bishop and complained about their priest, that he was just like totally erratic, that, 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 that sometimes the liturgy would be over at 12, sometimes it would go to 2, and sometimes it would go to 3, and that, that, that he would, they'd be in the middle of the liturgy, and he'd just stop. And... So the priest was called in, and the bishop asked him, why, why are you just stopping? And his response was, I'm waiting for the fire to go down. And, and there are countless stories like that. And there, there are many stories in St. Ignatius, and I don't, I don't want to minimize the reality of that. Uh, but, you know, Paul talked about his experience in the third person. I know a man. I know a few men who've seen, experienced a few things. And you have to. You know, you have to. There have been times when the Trisagian hymn is sung when I was at the altar. There have been times at the altar that a deacon had to poke me because I forgot where I was. <laughs> not, not out of forgetfulness, but of just, you know, losing, losing contact with the earthly part. Uh, I've seen deacons that I won't name by name weeping at the altar because of the experience of and the intimacy of, 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 of and the tangible presence of God. So the answer is absolutely yes. Um, and whether and I, and I got to stop. It, 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 it's. It reminds me of the story of St. Silouan. Most of you know St. Silouan. You know, you're laughing because I'm not going to stop. Uh, <laughs> but I am. <laughs> um, you know, which, if you don't know St. Silouan, he's a modern saint, 20th century. And not too long after, he, he was raised, of course, Orthodox, but not too long after his legitimate, his, his road to Damascus experience, he, he had a dramatic, tangible, Christ was in his presence. He saw Christ, Christ spoke to him. It struck him to the ground. And for years after that, it never happened again. And he, he prayed for it and wished for it and asked for it. And he even, in his writings, talks about, he, he called it abandonment. But then after, after of time, he came, of years, he came to realize that that, quote, abandonment was the very formative aspect of his faith that led him to an unshakable <coughs> belief. And, you know, we don't, we're not called to seek out those things. 
the great news about the liturgy is it's not overly, you know, it's, it's not over, its efficacy is not overly dependent on any one of us as an individual. It's like the old story of the two Russians who heard the co new, new convert in the in the narthex saying, "Today's service, I didn't like the service today. The choir was off. The homily was was boring. I didn't like today's service." And the old old lifelong Orthodox man looked at this. What is this to like business? <laughs> you know. Uh, and so, you know, I, I try, I struggle, but but my goal is to, no matter what's going on around me, is to reorient myself that the reality of what's going on is not dependent on my ability to perceive it. Um, so we'll stop with that. God bless you. <laughs>